from the Teaching and Learning Collaborative at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, where we dive deep into the art and science of teaching and learning. My guest today is Nick Vogue, an expert in teaching, learning, and motivation, and the Senior Associate Director of the McGraw Center for Teaching and Learning at Princeton University. His TED Talk, Self-Worth Theory, The Key to Understanding and Overcoming Procrastination, has been viewed over two million times. He is the co-author of the book, Life Beyond Grades, Designing College Courses to Promote Intrinsic Motivation. Nick Vogue, welcome to the CoLab. Thank you so much, Josh. I'm so glad to be here. Now, in your inspiring TED Talk, you say that a graduate seminar that you took Mm. about the self-worth theory of achievement motivation changed your understanding of the human condition. How so? The seminar itself, the content focused on something in psychology and approach to psychology. And I had studied psychology in undergrad that really penetrated and related to me personally. So it wasn't only reading research findings and understanding sort of how minds work. It really felt like it was talking about me and to me. And it makes sense because the broad theory that we were learning about was called self-worth theory. So it's self-reflective. It's about oneself. And you can put that research into the broader heading of what's sometimes called self-processes. So in that sense, we were reading about ourselves. So that, that's one part. It was we were talking about selves. And then what self-worth theory revealed about the dynamics of motivation and self-protection, and in particular procrastination, which is something that I had done a lot. And it just really unraveled this puzzle. I really want something, yet I put it off. And I'd certainly done that. And was a perplexed by it and felt ashamed by it. And yet here was this framework, this theory and set of empirical findings that explained that in a way. And so it was revelatory and kind of felt like somebody had seen into me in a way that was a little um, uncomfortable, but also kind of relieving. I still don't understand it, but somebody has a framework, a way of thinking about this that can bring me some insight. And that was really transformative. And then of course, the human condition part, meaning it's not only applicable to me, but in fact, the research uh, and the framework explains what a lot of people experience. And so that's what I meant by an insight into the human condition. It sounds like it was really impactful, not only because of the course content, but because of your connection to and relationship with the professor. You know, I, I see that um, Marty Covington is, was not only your professor in that graduate course at, at Berkeley, University of California, but also your co-author on this book. So clearly this relationship transcended just this one course. And I just wanted to ask you to reflect on what that professor did, what that faculty member did to make such a powerful impact on you that it's lasted throughout your whole life. I really appreciate that question. Um, because it's so crucial to our learning and growth and appreciation and risk-taking and expansion. And we need to, we often emulate people. And I think in college and grad school, maybe we diminish that. We expect that in elementary school, that the teacher is going to have that kind of very impersonal relationship. But another reason is I really love to extol the many, many virtues of Professor Martin Covington, who's really the greatest mentor I've ever had and a really wonderful human being in person. So I think One of the things about Marty was his humanity was always forefront, very calm and gentle and kind. He would, he would say things like, here's this assignment, but you know, don't spend more than a half hour on that. No, 30 minutes max. 
You got to keep balance. You know, who, 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 who does that in grad school? You know, that wasn't the message was put a limit on that, make it small. I think every other assignment I got felt like I could spend an infinite amount of time on it. And the expectations of my faculty and the standards were essentially limitless and perhaps unapproachable. And he was sending a very different message. Uh, Marty's personal philosophy, which I still try to act on, is appeal to people's most noble values and motivations and then help them achieve that. And so if we can create conditions where they can, where they don't feel these other pressures prevent them, then they're more likely to uh, achieve success, things that matter and are meaningful to them and to you as a teacher, for instance. So I've really tried to internalize that. People want to actualize. People want to grow. Uh, People want to do their best work. And um, sometimes some of the features of grading and teaching and institutions can actually, they can work for that, they can also work against it. Another one of my favorite quotes from the TED Talk is a Nelson Mandela quote, may your choices reflect your hopes and not your fears. So in other words, may you tip the balance from avoidance motivations to approach motivations, from fear as a motivator to genuine interest and a sense of expansive possibility. So how do you empower both the students and the faculty that you work with to more deeply understand what motivates them to both action and inaction and make choices that are guided by their hopes and not their fears? Well, that's a great question. I think One of them is to help both students and and instructors to pause and actually try to look inwards at their motivations. And that with a certain kind of framework, if we know a little bit about how, say, psychologists think about motivation, and I've given a few frameworks like approach versus avoidance, that's a very fundamental way of thinking about motivation or intrinsic motivation, something that's inherent to the task or extrinsic, a reward or response to that, or how I think about myself. So if I can give people a framework that the research has revealed, and then they can then look inside and bring some order and meaning and help them understand their own motivations. Motivation is energy for action. And so the energy, that's one definition. And so energy is in our bodies, If we can help people look inwards to their motivations, and then here's the key thing, to tap into the ones that they have. And this goes back to Marty's point, people's noble, people's idealistic motivations and say, let's create conditions where you can act on those motivations. So one step to that is getting clear about what they are. What are my motivations? Maybe articulating those, externalizing those. And then once they've articulated it and they've been externalized, then we can more easily tap into them. We can turn them into little sayings, little slogans. I can write it down and put it on my phone and send me a reminder of my motivation, not my tasks, right? How do I get that motivation into my consciousness, my conscious mind? I'm thinking about it, therefore feeling it. So that's a concrete strategy. One is I just did a workshop last week in which I walk students through this process, I call it motivational stacking. It's let's find all the different kinds of motivations that you have. And then I can help people kind of sort them and organize them and tell them something about that different motivations have different effects and ways to tap into those different kinds of motivations. So that's one way is this give a framework, have people introspect, then they externalize, and then they can kind of prioritize and make some choices. And, and my belief and the belief at the root of the book that you mentioned, Life Beyond Grades, is it is possible to reconcile and to, for these 
different kinds of motivations to coexist. We can want to get good grades and retain our passion for biology or physics or philosophy and understand and recognize this, the need to preserve our sense of self. But it's not easy to do that. If we can, in various ways, keep that space open for our hopes, our aspirations, right? Then we can, by, in so doing, we minimize the fear, at least in that moment. And that allows these other kinds of motivations to flourish to, and then to affect us. So one thing I say about motivation, particularly if, if you're not thinking about emotion, a motivation and you're not experiencing it, it doesn't affect you. It could still be a motive that you have genuinely, but if it's not in your head, it has no effect. So you might as well not have it. So our job is to actually bring our authentic, real motivations into our consciousness, into our minds, into our bodies when we want and need them. And sometimes that means when fear is there, right? So it's, it's despite the fear. But a lot of times what happens, I've noticed, is when I lift up my intrinsic motivations, when I lift up my approach mode as my desire to grow and achieve, the fears just automatically go down, relatively speaking. I don't have to shrink them. They just shrink, relatively speaking. I don't have to think about, I want to reduce my fear. Because then I'm thinking about my fear. Um, mostly what I need to do is simply say, I want to increase my passion that, and my attention on my passion that exists genuinely. And in so doing, that, that balance is tipped. And I think that's the, the message of the, the ages. People have, who are amazing that we think of as our heroes have had fears. They've been afraid. It's not that they didn't have them. It's that they were focusing on what was possible, what they were striving toward. And, and often the process of doing it, fear gets diminished when we're focused on that. And I love, I, have an, uh, I love all these insights we're having into motivation and you're sharing all these great, you know, deep psychological truths based on research. And I had a graduate school professor who talked a lot about how all behavior is motivated. Oftentimes we don't know exactly what the motivation even is. We're lost in the experience, but from the outside, sometimes you can see in the student, oh, I wonder if it's that. And you, you recognize something that you've experienced as a perfectionist or as, you know, avoider or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, and how their, you know, students self-worth is really tied into what's going on, especially when there's grades involved. Uh, and there's a lot of fear often of, of failure. And, you know, when there, it feels like the stakes are high, we have to protect ourselves, maybe, maybe even go as far as cheating, or maybe go as far as just handing in something we're not proud of, because then when it comes back, not so good, then I know I, it wasn't my best work. So how can we support students profound need for self-efficacy while at the same time challenging them to move outside of their comfort zones and see those moments of failure as both necessary to learning and productive? Well, that's a big question and one that I think we all, not only for students, but for ourselves. And maybe I'll start there. I think if I think about that question as uh, the purpose of that is to have our audience maybe acquire some tools for how to do that is a kind of uh, role reversal and ask yourself, so when am I in a situation? So for instance, if we're talking to faculty, what is it about the tenure system, that giant grading system in the university, right? That is analogous to what students experience in a class. What are the features of that that are, and that encourage growth and change and risk-taking and which ones don't? Uh, so again, the, the first move is even a kind of 
uh, meta move. It says, if I want to help students, can I use my own understanding as a human being, the internal motivational dynamics that I have by imagining a scenario that's similar to theirs and then plumbing the depths of that? And can I derive some principles what are the features of these situations? What conditions do I take risk? When don't I? And then can I create similar conditions in my classroom? That's a real general kind of uh, role reversal as pedagogical strategy making. But I think some, there's a few big ideas and principles that guide that articulated in the book. I think one is particularly for uh, adults, adult learners, and is having an understanding of the rationale and reasons why in this case, the instructor has developed the course in the way that they do. So if we see things as nonsensical or busy work, and that is really demotivating, and, and when we're in a state of demotivation or resentment, we're often in a state of trying to do the minimum. And so that is the opposite of risk-taking, right? And so that's one big, I don't think people talk, think about that as much. It's not only fear of failure in the sense of, I'm not going to be able to meet the standard, I can't do it. It's, it's just not worth my while. And I think it's incumbent on us to help them understand. And, um, and so that's one way. That's one kind of trans, what I call transparency. Another thing is, and this is something that the next one is I would call explicitness, which is a, obviously very similar, but a little different. I would say explicit about our expectations of students. So students are becoming adults. College is a different thing than high school. And those roles of teacher to student are actually quite different than professor to student, particularly around responsibilities, mutual relationships, and I think uh, a lot of times we just assume students coming into the college just know what those are. Uh, and I think that's just not true. And we have some where it's incumbent upon us as, as, as denizens of this new environment to say, here's how it's done here. Not in a punitive way or belittling way, but to help people understand that. So, and one way to make, to try to bring this home to faculty is I'll sometimes say, do you think your class, think of your course as grade 13? you know, in the American system, we go K to 12, is it grade 13? And they almost always kind of take offense at that. Like, no, it's college, it's different. In a lot of ways. Okay, well, did you explain to your students how that's the case? And so I think we need to be explicit about those expectations of students, not to prescribe and say everything little thing that they should do. I'm not saying that, because that can remove agency. And that's another thing we need to do. But in terms of if we have some expectations in our heads and we th and think it might be different than the way they're accustomed to or they're essential to the class, then it's worthwhile for us to, to point that out and help people, help students internalize those. So I already alluded to a third one, I think um, autonomy, agency, that could be reflected in terms of choice. Um, can we give students uh, some choice? We're more likely to take a risk when we can shape the topic the format of our work, the direction, how long it takes. And so, and also because then that taps into, when we have some of that choice, we can fashion a project or a process that often builds on things we really like. And then again, we fear failure less, or we, feed, we receive, if it's an intrinsically valuable, inherently valuable and relevant outcome, or end, not even outcome, end that we're seeking, then what we, we receive uh, in feedback, even if it's negative on our performance, like I didn't do it very well, as constructive, like, oh, I've, now I know what not to do. That's what we want students to be thinking, right? Like, they're going to get that feedback. We want them to actually not even experience it as failure. We want them to experience it as input toward the objective 
that they want. So some of that comes from then having some control, that they have a sense of where they want to go with that objective, and it means it's valuable to them. And in its own right, it has to be more valuable than, scare, than the feedback is scary or threatening. So let me give you an example I often use to illustrate um, what we're trying to get at around autonomy and the power of intrinsic motivation and how when you have that, you fear, your fear goes down and your responsiveness and reaction to negative feedback of quote failure or setbacks is utterly transformed. So I think all of us probably have seen a gaggle of skateboarders hanging out near some concrete steps or something with handrail and various things. You know what I'm talking about? And they fall down and they get up and they'll do it a hundred times, hundreds of times. Put that same person in front of a math problem in a classroom, piece of paper on the table. After a minute, two, they're done. So what's going on, right? So when they're hitting, they're doing that trick and they quote fail, they're often saying, oh, I almost got it. That framing of, right, we might call it half full. Like we see it as progress. All right, I'm closer. I got, it. okay, what did I learn? Everything is oriented toward achieving the objective, right? Even though they failed, they failed hundreds and hundreds of times. What is it about that search situation that utterly transforms that experience? I would like to, I'd like to say that failure is an experience, not an objective outcome, right? So those, those skateboarders are not experiencing that as failure. They're experiencing that as incremental improvement towards something they value. So I think what we want to try to do is we want to make our classroom situations something like that skateboarding situation and, and the ways that I've talked about and some others. So, so some other ways that we help people minimize the power of fear. An, another really practical one is well, there's a convention in, in the university that you do a test and that's it and, you, and that's over. it is over. But in a lot of places, you get a second chance or a third chance. So just the opportunity to re redress poor performance. It's a very simple policy that can reduce the anxiety and pressure. I always tried to say to my students, I don't care when you learn it. It's that you learn it. It's certainly more, more important. I, don't, I can't be doing this all, you know, we, the semester ends, but, um, but for the most part, so if you want to take it again or try to take another shot or see it as in progress. So that's a big idea. How do you redress poor performance? And knowing that in advance, right, can lower the feeling of these stakes. I think for me, given what I do mainly, it's really trying to equip and empower students. Sometimes students are fearful, then they're right. They don't know how to learn physics very well. They're, they haven't developed processes of writing that are very effective. And so when you don't have that sense of competency, you're right to not be confident. And so the fundamental root of that is actually to equip people with the practices of how to learn, how to read in order to write effectively, and then how to a process of writing to create effective essays. And so I really am trying to equip and empower students with knowledges, processes, strategies, techniques, and tools. And those are really durable. And when students can then internalize those and then see the results, then they can feel confident in their, in their performance because they feel they have the tools and the toolbox. And I, I love that in your TED Talk, you say that your mission in life is to reduce suffering. Yeah. So Tell me more about that value system that underpins your mission to reduce suffering and how you came to sum up your mission in life with that elegant phrase, reduce suffering. I hope it's not too grandiose, but it, it does come directly. I didn't mention it and I didn't contextualize in this way. And, but it is that 
comes directly from Buddhism and a, Mahayana Buddhism, if you're familiar with that term, and the idea of the bodhisattva's vow. The bodhisattva is someone who seeks wisdom and enlightenment, not only for the purpose of their own enlightenment, but also so that they can reduce the suffering of others, uh, to help other people seek enlightenment. And from a motivational psychologist's point of view, I see that as, oh, I've got two kinds of motivation, right? For my own well-being and my own peace and to increase the peace of other people. And that the insight, uh, this is all conjecture, but my, my sense is that the insight of the Mahayana sect of Buddhism was, it's really hard to do that work, to, to find whatever enlightenment is. Um, and we need all the motivation we can get, including the desire, which is so powerful for so many of us to help others. So that's where that phrase comes from. And to be frank, you know, to speak, I see a lot of suffering at Princeton. And I was at Berkeley before this, and I saw a lot of suffering among the students in particular. And this isn't often talked about. We often talk about, you know, the institution talks about itself in very glowing terms. On the home, you're not going to hear on the homepage of any university, students suffering, barely surviving. Um, but I think that is the case for a lot of college students, and especially during the, the pandemic. Um, and so for me, it's very important to bring that to the fore. Certainly my objectives are more simply than reduce suffering, but I think that's an important first step. From the angle, because I just work with self-worth theory, I think a, some of the experiences of that, when our worth is on the line, our sense of ourselves, there can be a lot of anguish associated with that, right? And so I, with that lens, I think you notice this suffering that comes from one's relationship to oneself, typically a, appraisal or judgment. So powerful emotions associate that become, make, be, or make some sense through a self-worth theory are shame, embarrassment, right? People are sh ashamed when they're unable to achieve, right? Then they, when they assess their ability or they believe other people are assessing their ability as inadequate, we feel ashamed. And so I think that's a source of a lot of suffering that is not the pain of in physical injury, right? It's this suffering is internal, right? It's me assessing me, me assessing my performance, me judging that. So that's both a super powerful, um, but also suggests that it's me that can do something about that, right? So that is both, comes both from self-worth theory and from Buddhism. I love your Buddhist sensibility. It's informed also by positive psychology. Yeah. You recognize that some of our challenges result from external difficulties that life is throwing at us, but some of our suffering and your mission is to reduce suffering. So right. some of that, that actually comes from our responses to those challenges. And we kind of create our own challenges or suffering internally yeah. just through the way we react to our life circumstances. And so you target your interventions toward those perspective shifts that we can offer one another to reduce our suffering and kind of become more whole, especially Beautiful. in bureaucracies and in all these mm -hmm. dehumanizing institutions. So right. what kinds of questions do you ask students and faculty to help them see their circumstances in new ways and offer them new possibilities for experiencing what they're going through academically? I, th I think you're, you're, so I think there's questions of possibility. What do they aspire to and try to try to put aside what we see as these limitations or what I can't do and try to create an environment where there's a bit of calm and trust and, and safety. How might I flourish a bit more? Um, and so that I, my work is underpinned 
um, by positive psychology and well-being and flourishing theory. And so I'll ask students questions in these different realms. You know, how might you, how might you tap into your intrinsic motivation for this class in ways that you're not yet? You know, so I might say, why did you sign up for this class? Why this one? What did it feel like? How can you get, then the question would be, how can you get back in touch with those feelings, with those motivations? And how do you do that on a daily basis? This idea of asking students, what could they be doing to be flourishing more? It's something that professors can ask students. It's not only something they could find at the wellness center. I mean, this is something that we can have these relationships. You were talking about the dearth of these meaningful relationships. And so a professor could, could, could have that type of interaction with a student. And, um, and really self-worth theory is a tool for self-acceptance. And you, you mm-hmm. see how self-acceptance is so powerful and how it can help people move beyond these challenges. And something you also talk about is self-talk and that we have all these cognitive distortions and the way we talk to ourselves has a lot of power in the way we end up acting and seeing our possibilities in the world. So tell us a little bit more about that, how that could relate to intrinsic motivation and supporting student and faculty success. You know, one of the ways we understand self-talk is what, what we tell ourselves is what we think about and what we think about is what we tell ourselves. And so if we're thinking about the due dates and dreading the, the work and how long it's going to take and what might happen if I don't get an A, those are understandable considerations, um, but they often squeeze out the fascination, the passion, the desire for self-growth, the things that why the reasons why we signed up for the class in the first place. And so if we're aware of our self-talk, and like, well, I'm, I'm noticing that when, I'm, when I think about this cl- class or this topic or this information or this subject, I'm thinking about these things and I'm not, but I'm not thinking about these other things. And so self-talk is, is an index. It's an indication of what I am thinking, but not what I possibly could think. And in fact, it can tell me, I can realize, wow, I'm actually really motivated to be in this physics class because it's going to help me be a better physician. And the reason I want to be a physician we can, well, why do you want to be a physician? And well, I want to help you. Well, why do you want to help people? And you can keep, help people dig down to those really powerful values. And so self-talk, for instance, can be a way to find that, to, to notice what's on my mind and then see how that's affecting me. And then I want to have different effects. And then to one way to make sure, or at least increase the possibility that I'm being motivated by these powerful intrinsic motivations or these so pro-social motivations is to talk to myself in those terms, right? So, and then I can, once I'm clear about that, I can write out statements and remind myself in the morning. I, it's almost like prayer, or I can type them in as a reminder on my phone and have my phone have this powerful p- computer in my, my pocket, which tends to be a distraction device. I can reconceptualize that as a personal development device and and have it remind me not of my to-do list, but of my motivations that I want to have in my mind by giving me a sentence or two. I want to come back to something you're talking about. So the role of professors to do that. I think another thing that professors can do is really model their own passion and why and how it's changed their lives to, to do what they do and think the way that they do and to help people appreciate, if they're not going to be that, to see the possibility of deep immersion in a field as a way to find satisfaction, fulfillment in a meaningful life. It doesn't have to be the same field, um, but I think there's a modeling component. So I think it's really important that we don't ask professors to be therapists. I'm not a therapist. I don't wanna be a therapist, 
That's not to say we can't talk about emotions or motivations or try to inspire people in ways that are appropriate to the college classroom and that are appropriate to our role. So I think it's really important in our roles to act within our roles for me. And I actually have a fairly conservative role about what a teacher is. I want to be fully human in that. I'm op open to talk about anything, but I'm a coach, but I'm not a therapist and I'm not a parent. I don't do those things. Uh, and I think I, I emphasize this because I, I just, in the back of my mind, I wonder if there's some faculty thinking, but that's not really what I do or who I am. And I, I respect that. It's the nature of the interaction. I'm going to coach you because a coach, one of the functions of a teacher is to coach, is to give you encouragement and to guide you to the pathway. Um, but I, I'm not going to parent you and I'm not going to talk about be a, a, a therapist. And so we can talk about well-being and work toward it within our role. I think a lot of faculty see themselves primarily as deliverers of content yeah. rather than designers of experiences. And I think one way that they can design an experience that is inviting, invites students into this deep inquiry and really sparks this deep interest in the why, why we're here and that transparency is this, this notion of how vulnerability can actually be strength, can actually be an ability to, and give strength to others. And one of those ways that I think faculty, you know, shy away from being vulnerable is just telling their own story, yeah. you know, and sh sharing what motivates them and about the discipline or their struggles as a student. So students don't just see them as this perfect being, but as somebody who's fully human and has failed and has picked themselves up and so can you, you know. And, and you talk about how educators need to start thinking about students' motivational profiles, in addition right. to just their learning profiles or whatever, but, but what is actually motivating them? And, and you know, you, all these concepts of motivational to-do list, motivational stacking um, kind of relates to universal design. You know, everybody's going to be motivated differently. And, and, and how can we make a class that everybody can find, all the students can find some way to tap into the motivation to, to right. you know, take the learning forward? Again, a lovely, another life, uh, lovely summary. Um, right. So we, we think about the variety of student learners in, a, in all kinds of ways. Um, and, and I think continuing with the kinds of motivations and then also being aware that mo different kinds of motivations affect students differently. And so a sophisticated, uh, well-prepared instructor knows about motivation. I think there's design features of grading systems and content and assignments we talked about. Another feature you talked about that can motivate students is to tell this personal story. And I think faculty would be shocked at how powerful that can be. There's some research on that. Understanding, again, the, the fundamental human needs that are operating in our motivations of self-preservation. And so to then to, to address that, right, that's on the table. If we plumb, if we retrospect and then introspect on our experience as students we, who are uh, faculty or instructors, I think we will see this was operating and churning below the surface quite powerfully sometimes. I think the point is, first, we just, if we, to take interest in our students' motivational profile, we have to recognize the power of that motivation. And then this goes back to introspecting on our own experiences as learners and students. Some things I'll help faculty think about are when they reflect on their education, they often think about the classes they loved, which were typically in their subject matter. And then they think, well, my students aren't, aren't like me. They're not doing that. And I always try to say, that's the wrong class to reflect on. Think about that class you didn't want to take. Think about that class that was a prerequisite or a breath requirement maybe that you didn't want. And then think about that one that you went in doing it to check a box, but the professor 
created an experience, to use your term, designed an experience that shifted you away from simply um, going through the motions. They hooked you and got you engaged. That's the class we want to analyze. We want to use a little bit different kind of litmus. We want to use a little different kind of thought experiment uh, when we're imagining uh, students and creating and designing these uh, experiences. But I also think, and then another point I would want to make that in terms of failure, have you heard of the CV of failure? I have. Yeah. Tell us about it. But that often students believe professors to be, have had a long, long, uninterrupted history of successes, one after the other. And of course, our own experience of that is such a, no, that's not the case, but we don't see that. And we don't put that on our CV. We do the opposite on our CV. A CV is an old fashioned version of a Facebook profile, all the best, right? And we leave off systematically all of our setbacks and unattained goals. And so the CV of failure documents these times when we didn't achieve our goal. And it reminds me, I'm going to drop, drop a name here and tell a story uh, related to this. So I have a friend who was at, uh, at Harvard who ran there. It's called the Bureau of Study Council at the time. It was kind of the tutoring and learning center. And she was doing an event at Harvard about failure and trying to normalize failure. And she was an acquaintance with Howard Gardner, the psychologist, the very famous psychologist, right? And she tells, she tells this great story, Abigail. She was planning this event. She thought that she was on this meeting with Howard Gardner. And she said, you know, I'm going to take this opportunity. I'm going to ask him. So she goes, she says, as they're walking out of the meeting, Howard, you know, would you be able to come to this event? It's about failure. And to get into the event, you have to bring a concrete example of a failure. And he stops in his tracks and he's kind of quiet. And inside Abigail's mind, she's like, oh, I asked him the stupid question. Of course, he's never, he doesn't have anything you know, he's, tra- he's trying, he's plumbing his thought. Like, do I have a, something that shows I failed? And so she gets a little anxious, says, oh, I'm sorry. Maybe you don't have any, maybe you don't have any kind of rejection letters. It's like, no, no, no. I'm just thinking of the thousands of, fa- of failures. Which one would I bring? So and I think what that shows is we, we kind of all think everybody else, right? Is this a, un, all these successes, right? We don't, even this woman, Abigail Lippman, who studies this is like in that moment, of course we know better. Everybody has these experiences and that, that experience from the inside, right? From the inside, it's of all the failures, <laughs> which am I going to choose? From the outside, someone is thinking you have no failures. Self-worth theory gives us this angle, this lens on our internal experience that reveals something that no one can see, right? No one else can see it. And that Often that internal perspective is gear is oriented toward the negative, toward the failure, toward the limitations, toward the unmet expectations that no one else even knows. We, that expectation was in our head. We notice that we didn't achieve that thing. Other people notice what we achieved. So I'm going to tell a story. So this book that we referenced, Lives on, um, Life Beyond Grades, um, I wrote that with Marty and Marty really led the way. And another dear colleague, Dr. Linda Van Hunna, who's at Berkeley, um, but that book was supposed to have another chapter in it. And I was supposed to write that chapter and I just couldn't do it. So there's a way when I look at that book, I think failure. I didn't do it. I couldn't, I didn't get it done. So on my CV, it says proudly this book, but in a way it's this unmet, it has this meaning of this unmet expectation for me. So I think perhaps, perhaps the, the Buddhism training has taught me to accept both of those things. And that's both, they're both okay. The one doesn't supersede and overshadow the other, uh, but it's true. And so being able to look inside and say, yeah, I'm not all that. That's a, that's a nice little humility. Um, but we did, we did produce this, this other product that's meaningful to people and has been helpful in the world. And when I focus on that, 
that unwritten chapter kind of disappears. So in your book, Life Beyond Grades, Designing College Courses to Promote Intrinsic Motivation, you argue that a love of learning can coexist and even thrive in the face of competing pressures from grades. The book provides a blueprint for developing courses that that promote both subject matter mastery and the will to learn over a lifetime. So tell us about this blueprint. Well, the blueprint is meant to be, uh, you know, a step by stepwise process of designing a course. And it's motivated by the idea that one objective we should all have for our courses is to be thinking about and cultivating the quality of student engagement, not just the outcomes. How do we envision how students are going to act and interact in class with each other? With How do we imagine them interacting with assignments? What is the quality of that like what, what kinds of motivations are tapped by that? And the work on engagement, uh, George Koo and others, if you know that name, is such a powerful proxy. How we engage is based powerful for our experiences and the outcomes. So that should be an object of our design. So one the way the blueprint for that we articulate is first um, using this kind of idea of backward design is quite prominent. Teague and McTee and others is to articulate a central question or a central problem that organizes all the course content and provides a, a target or an objective for all participants, including the instructor, to strive for, to learn and try to answer this question or address approach solving this problem. And the idea is that it's multifaceted and so it's complex. We actually don't know the answer. Um, no one in the room knows the answer. It's a genuine question. It has some validity, it's meaningful in the discipline. And so there, you, we have to think uh, intentionally about that. But the, that central question is put forefront and is constantly referred to, and we're striving to get to that point. One of the things that's a little bit different about the, the, the blueprint is the next step is then to say, to articulate a culminating project that would reflect and reveal and provide a, a concrete and, and valid and, uh, assessment of how far students have progressed toward achieving that, right? So it concretizes this question and the objective and the outcome and saying, that's what we're shooting for. And so we think of it as kind of bookending, right? What's this question that starts us off, but what's the, the culminating project at the end that again is multifaceted, multiple ways in, and then the curriculum and the instruction is scaffolding toward equipping students to generate an, an answer to that question or to solve that problem in some way. So there's the, the steps along the way. The, the blueprint reflects some of the principles that we had talked about before around transparency and explicitness and autonomy. A crucial step uh, in the blueprint is designing grading systems that don't get in the way of students' intrinsic motivations in particular. So a big idea is that intrinsic motivations are powerful yet fragile. So we know they're powerful, right? People have a passion for something, put in a lot of energy, they're disciplined toward it, but the external contingencies of grades and other considerations can actually extinguish that. You know, your love of, uh, as a professional athlete, can extinguish your love of the sport. Uh, certainly researchers and inquirers of any discipline can find that the drudgery of, of running a lab or writing uh, grant proposals can squelch their love of, of the subject matter. Um, we can all experience that. And in any case, so the, the, the blueprint is, addressing different dimensions of the course, the curriculum, the modes of instruction, the modes of, of assessment, uh, working with TAs even, all of these are dimension, are, are steps and dimensions of course design and therefore addressed stepwise chapter by chapter. And that provides the blueprint toward designing courses that again, take a, uh, engagement as an objective unto itself and are designed to create a, a pathway for students to address one of these powerful 
galvanizing central questions. Let me ask you the question that I ask everyone on the show, which is tell me about the role that curiosity has played in your life. Well, very apt, right? So curiosity is a very powerful, so the role curiosity has played in my life has been very powerful. It's very apt to what I study, intrinsic motivation, this desire to learn and, and uh, to pursue. I, I said earlier in my, so in my life, I said earlier that this idea of understanding has been a very powerful driver for me. And it has been for kind of as long as I can remember. I, so I think for me, curiosity has helped me create a very personal kinds of motivation, even in institutions or circumstances or work environment or work world or this life that I could find a little world, a little bubble for me that was meaningful, that I could maintain that curiosity regardless of what was going on. Uh, and sometimes I was curious about me. Sometimes I was curiosity about the, the situation I was in. Sometimes I was curiosity about this, the world um, or my subject matter, my discipline. It helped me put aside that perfectionism that I've encountered it put helped me put aside some of the, these inst- institutional um, demands that we all face so I think curiosity is a kind of um, refuge or created spaces of refuge it led to moments of immersion something like flow uh, I think it's given me purpose so when I find myself really challenged like I don't want to do this um, what I found historically, is when I can find something of interest to me in the task, no matter what it is, then that sparks my motivation. It's not always even, I'm sorry to admit it, it's not always to reduce suffering. I like that to be the case, but actually for me, the more powerful is what's interesting to me. And I think that's curiosity. That's an expression of curiosity. So I think kind of been a a balm and then also a fuel. That's beautiful. Nick, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Josh. You've asked some really wonderful questions. I learned a lot and it felt like a growth experience. So thank you so much. And, uh, you know, having the opportunity to, sh- to share some of these, these thoughts with who I'm sure are very thoughtful listeners is a, is a real privilege. Nick Vogue is the Senior Associate Director of the McGraw Center for Teaching and Learning at Princeton University. And I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, a production of the instructional design team at the Teaching and Learning Collaborative here at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us. And as always, stay curious. Hey everyone, just wanted to let you know that we will not be coming out with an episode in December, so sorry about that, but we hope that you find other things to inspire you and listen to and that you have a great holiday season and and, uh, rest and rejoice in this time. And uh, we'll be back with you at the end of January with another episode of the CoLab Podcast. Definitely stay curious. And uh, reach out to us, teachawit.edu.